The work of a teacher, exhausting, complex, idiosyncratic, never twice the same, is at its heart an intellectual and ethical enterprise. Teaching is the vocation of vocations, a calling that shepherds a multitude of other callings. It is an activity that is intensely practical and yet transcendent, brutally matter-of-fact and yet fundamentally a creative act. Teaching begins in challenge and is never very far from mystery. And that's the voice of Bill Ayers, who is most definitely, as we say, indubitably a teacher. And you see book of other, we were hearing children doing rope skipping, rhymes and jumping, and that in itself, these words that are made up and created are not planned ahead of time. And you, you're speaking of teaching begins in challenge and never far from mystery. And that's precisely not what we're taught. Exactly. In traditional ways what a teacher is. Exactly. I mean, in the traditional way that we see teaching, and I think increasingly so, it's, a, uh, it's more like clerking. I mean, a teacher is a clerk. She passes on the wisdom and intelligence and ideas of somebody else to uh, putatively passive kids who are supposed to sit there and take it in. Well, this is the farthest thing from learning, and it's really the farthest thing from teaching. This is the theme of your book. It's a paperback called To Teach. Notice that's to teach, which is active. That's right. Stanislavski, and speaking of actors, was to act is to do, to teach is something active. We could talk about that in a moment too. Uh, that teaching is a certain action that's as right. well. And the subtitle, the journey of a teacher. Of course, it's your journey. You know, Herb Cole, who's an excellent educator, uh, writes a very glowing uh, introduction to it, and it's published by. Teachers College Press, but we'll come to that later. So back to the subject of the right. clerk as against what is it you advocate and well, what you live, I should say. Yeah, what I advocate and try to practice is that is teaching, I think, is both an intellectual and a moral craft. I think in particular it's a moral undertaking, moral in a, in a, in a number of senses. One is there, it's, the kind of, uh, it's the kind of work that requires you to... Uh, understand, to know, to reach out to the people who are your students. And uh, I argue very strongly that in order to become a teacher, you must first be a student of your students' lives. That that's the beginning. So a student, you have these kids, and you have many anecdotes and incidents involving your own children as well. That's right. As well as others' kids. And that's what you're talking about, lighting, setting a spark going that is, you said passive, of uh, the traditional thing, the clerk who hands on received right. wisdom to kids who accept. That is, there's no give, there's an accept. This way, my apathy, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's, that's in the ideal. In reality, yeah. most kids don't accept, and most kids resist. And the resistance of students is something that we spend enormous effort and energy in colleges of education and in school systems trying to overcome. So the big obsession in schools of education is uh, questions of discipline, classroom management. How do I get these kids to do what they don't want to do? Monitoring. And monitoring and overseeing and judging and testing. And the reality of learning is none of that. The reality of learning is uh, that inherent reach for competency, for skill, for take, ability. Take your own case. You a teacher when you first began. This is really the, is a journey through teaching of yourself. That's right. Learning from some of the children. We know, I saw you in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How many, when years ago? Must have been 30 years ago. 30 years ago, it was, it was 60s. <laughs> and 
30 years ago, you had a school and a community something, but you had a button. Yeah. And the button is children are newer people. That's right. about that and then take off. Sure. Um, uh, what we had in mind then, I was a 20-year-old teacher at the time. I had just begun, and I knew you from Chicago, and you were up doing your play yeah. up in Ann Arbor. That bomb. But, yeah, but it was a good play anyway. <laughs> it was worth doing. Uh, in any case, I, was, I, was, uh, I had a little school called the Children's Community, and one of our slogans was children are only newer people. And our idea, which I think I've carried with me for 30 years more, is that uh, children are not best understood by their deficits, by the things they can't do, by their inadequacies, uh, children are best understood as full human beings uh, uh, who you have to interact with and draw out if you're going to educate them. So let's be perhaps a little more specific then, too. Sure. Your own story. You, there are anecdotes that are telling the metaphors as well. Right. So we start, how, you, how do you find out what it is that's inside them that is not coming out what? and that resists when something is given to them that is not relevant to that. Right. I mean, part of what you what uh, the responsibility of a teacher is, is to be a close observer. I mean, that's part of what what has to happen. I know in the book, I talk a bit about uh, about one of my children, we have one of our sons is adopted. And uh, uh, when he went off to school, we were terrified at uh, what the teacher would see, because this was a child who had many, many difficulties, who'd overcome a lot, who had a lot of uh, problems in his life. And uh, what the teacher might have seen was all the things that he couldn't do, the, uh, the fact that he couldn't read very well, the fact that he sometimes was given to temper tantrums and so on. When we went to see the teacher after, after our son had been in the class for a couple of months, we were delighted to discover that the teacher had found ways to build on the strengths that our son brought rather than to concentrate all of his fire on, on this child's weaknesses, to find a way to... Um, allow him example. to come into focus. For example, uh, Chase was at the time, um, I guess, five or six years old. Uh, he, uh, he was somewhat clumsy. Uh, he was also very determined. In his determination, he could become dogmatic and overbearing. But the wonderful thing was this teacher said to us, I found that if I asked Chase to do a real job, if I ask him to take all the books off the bookshelf and wash the bookshelves, that he'll be busy for hours, you know, working away. And what this does when Chesa takes on an activity that he can stick to, that he can apply himself to, what this does is it brings his strength into focus for himself as well as for his peers as well as for the teacher. So there was the something teacher. he was doing uh, that was tangible. That's right. That also he was contributing something making a contribution to the group, and then the next time he might stumble over somebody's block building or the next time he might do something that wasn't as acceptable, uh, he, you could see the child in focus in a way that his strength was available to him, to the other kids, and so on. You know, it's very funny as you say this, just as Chesey, your own kid, discovery. You speak of the excitement of an active discovery. There's a kid named Jose early in the book, who's, a, who's a, obviously he's, he's a hurricane, a, tor a wrecking crew. But there's something you did with Jose That's that right. helped him discover that he was good at skateboarding. Well, that, what, what, that's an example yeah. of a teacher who struggles 
really to see what can this kid do. And I often do this now with my uh, students who are going to become teachers. I challenge them to find a kid that they find particularly difficult or unruly in the traditional senses and find out something that kid can do. In the case of Jose Laluz, what he could do was he could uh, skateboard, but it was not visible in the school for a variety of reasons. There's no place to skateboard. Skateboarding is not in the curriculum and so on. Uh, what, what, what was important, though, was to watch this kid, talk to this kid, interview this kid, get close to this kid, so that he could at some point reveal that there was something he could do. And in this case, what he could do was skateboard. The teacher's response, very clever, was to set up a skateboard repair center in a corner of the room, which only existed for a short time before school on Fridays. But that was the place where Jose could become the center of action. Something that kid, a troublesome kid, in any trouble, you find out what that kid can do. That's right. Or likes doing, too. That's right. And that is called upon, and so that opens the doors to discovery that, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I am somebody. That's right. And, he bec and then the teacher's job is to build bridges from that to deeper and wider ways of knowing. So from skateboarding, yeah. we can discover reading, we can discover math and physics, we can discover culture and yeah, history. It's interesting, as you say that, uh, one of your admirers, of course, is an excellent educator, Jonathan Kozow, you know, right. Death at an Early Age in the most recent books, Unequal, Savage Inequalities. Savage Inequalities, right. And Jonathan writes of my friend Bill Ayer's book, my guest, no one since John Holt, and we'll come to him in a moment, has written so thoughtfully about things that actually happen, italicize the word happen, again we come active, that the students are active as well as the happen in the classroom. Ayers has been there and he knows and he shares what he's learned with tremendous sensitivity. This book I'm sure will be required reading in every school to education in the nation. And it goes on, Ayers writes beautifully of children he has known, so many unforgettable vignettes in this book. And I hope that uh, Bill can tell uh, recount a few of them. The book touches the heart of almost anyone who loves the authenticity of oral history. And so we're having exchange and talk. But Jonathan, uh, John Holt was mentioned. And Holt says some years ago on this very program what you're saying. And same, you've come to the same conclusion on, on different roads. He describes a scene of retarded children in a classroom. And this one kid is so helpless and hopeless. And John has Cuisinart. Could you describe Cuisinart rods? Yeah, these are small uh, rods, multicolored rods that, that kids play with like little blocks. But they're divided up so that you have what, the orange rod is like 10 units and the blue rod is 5 units and so on. And the challenge for these kids was to match it so suddenly it clicks. There's a design, right. that answer. And this kid was trying. And the other kids who were retarded are watching him. They're rooting for him, and he's biting his tongue, and bang, he discovers it. He's like, I did it! And the kids all broke into cheers. And John says that was one of the great moments of his life, he, the teacher's life, that discovery. Is yeah. it? That's what we're talking uh, about. Yeah, I, I taught preschool for many years, as you know, and I, I uh, again, the challenge for a teacher often is to create the environment where the kind of things John described can happen. And if you have an environment which looks like a little lecture hall, it's not likely much is going to happen for elementary age kids or even for high school age kids. And increasingly, 
uh, for any learner. But learner and discovery, we're saying, it is not something handed down. It is no. not a piece of information that is done fund, fund. I did come across a teacher in the book working. Oh, for years and years, you were using fun, fun, fun. Right. You know, and, and that's not quite it. No, I, I argue you know, that, that learning should be fun is, is a mistake. Actually, people use that, and I know what they mean, and, and I'm probably sympathetic to what they mean. But I think it's much more accurate to say learning should be engaging, involving, satisfying. Fun can be a little superficial. So this you know? leads the to, idea isn't to entertain with more yeah, fun. This the leads, idea, of course, to perhaps controversy. And that's Sesame Street. Right. Now, Sesame Street won awards, and just right, rightfully so. But Sesame Street, Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Musing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman condemns Sesame. He says, it is not, because it's, it's given to you. You know how the alphabet works, you know, but there's no effort on the part of right. the young viewer watching it who is indeed a sort of couch potato. Well, exactly. I mean, I think what you end up there with there is is... Uh, kind of so much of what's made for kids is pacifying. And what we want is not to pacify kids. We want them to be active constructors of their own knowledge and of their own worlds. And to sit and watch somebody else perform the alphabet is not at all the same with, yeah. as struggling with yeah. letters, struggling with blocks. So there is that battle, that struggle. Absolutely. And, and I was going to mention when you talked about involvement, uh, one of the things I always set up in my classroom was an easel with red yellow and blue paint. A kid just playing at the easel mm. would come to me maybe a dozen times a year, someone would come to me and say, unbelievable, Bill, look at this. If you mix the red and the, and the uh, blue, you get purple. And it's that discovery of purple through the actual playing with it that becomes the knowledge learned. And I could do a lesson on primary and secondary colors that would be an anemic affair by comparison. I think that's the point. Uh, the book it's a beauty. It, it's, it, it's a little paperback. It's called To Teach, and the subtitle, The Journey of a Teacher. It is your learning from the kids as well. Bill Ayers is the uh, author. It's I think this is available in some of the books. Absolutely, stores. yeah. Bill Ayers, and the word to describe him is very simply, teacher. And, of course, writing about it. In this beauty of a book discovery and teaching, learning from the students. So there was a guy you met and I knew, both admired very much. He was an adult education school in Tennessee, burned out by the Klan. Miles Horton was attended at one time by Martin Luther King, another time by the Ruther brothers and labor guys, and black and white. And it was in the heart of segregated country and hit both attending. Miles was a great educator. Everyone agrees to that. And he's all education. You quote him in your introduction, your foreword, Miles Horton. All education is a form of action based on some kind of social philosophy. Right. So that concerns, and there's a world outside that classroom. Absolutely. What I try to do yeah. here is not only talk about teaching and the act of teaching and, and, and make a, an argument about teaching as, a, as an intellectual and moral activity, but I also try to situate teaching and schooling in the larger society. I mean, there, it seems to me society has a responsibility to say, what kinds of kids do we want to see graduating from our schools? And then to examine the schools that exist and, and critically ask themselves whether these schools are producing the kinds of citizens, yeah. citizens that we want. So you're outside, you're in the street, and I just put down a quote when the little girl says, where does the woman go, the woman in the green shoes? Where does she live? 
this happened what? You're outside and there were some homeless people. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that if you allow yourself to open, I mean, I worked with very young children for a long time, and if you stay open to their questions, in a way, you get asked the most profound questions of all about society, walking with a group of kids to the park, and a kid says, why is that woman lying in the street? Where does that person go at night? And of course, you can cover it over, you can uh, say that that's not an appropriate question for a child to ask, or you can try to honestly engage those kinds of questions in your teaching. And so that leads to words, but words with, with meaning to life. That leads to knowing about that something out there. Well, that's right. I mean, I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons teaching is such an exciting intellectual challenge is because the world is infinite, knowledge is infinite, and you have to constantly strain to keep up with the questions that even young children ask. And then you have to also, I think, be, be honest about uh, being active in that world. For example, uh, we were in, when I taught in New York City, uh, Sydenham Hospital, which was a, one of the few community hospitals serving Harlem, was closed down by the city, and several of the kids some, some of the kids' parents were put out of work, and several of the kids lived in that community. And so we became involved as a class in the struggle to keep Sydenham Hospital open. When the ministers occupied the hospital, we baked carrot cake and took it to them, and that became a very moving experience for we a lot of the kids. You and the kids. We, we did it in the class. That's in right. Class. It became a project of the class. That was an act. That's right. That's an act. And showing that you don't have to be passive in, in the face of the world as you find it. Well, just as you do that, you know the work of the Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire. Very well, yeah. Now, he, I knew you, <laughs> now, he teaches like language to illiterate uh, adults as well as kids, but the words that they learn are active words. Under the word hunger, which they've experienced, they know the meaning of the word. They know how to spell it. Obviously, hunger, isn't right. that so? Exactly. Uh, that's how he. That's how he begins. But he, his argument is that you can't learn to read the word unless you learn to read the world, and it's reading the world becomes a step to reading the word. There's a group uh, on the west side of Chicago right now who are doing that with kids and adults in a very interesting way. Group of women uh, studying literacy and in the course of it writing their autobiographies, which were published in a, in a journal called the Journal of Ordinary Thought. That became a primer for the kids in the school. But then the women said, well, we're tired of just talking about our lives. We want to do something about our lives. They got involved in closing down an abandoned home, house that was being uh, used as a crack house. I mean, in other words, the literacy led to the action, which led to the sense of citizenship and, and uh, participation. Yeah, the literacy led to the action that uh, all the time there was participation. Right. We're talking about participation. The school where you are now, University how would you of describe Illinois. It? University of Illinois. Is that where you are? I'm yeah. at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And um, you're teaching? I'm a professor of education. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But the schools you are at, the one in Ann Arbor, uh -huh. and you mentioned the Sydenham Hospital right. place. And so these are, uh, what class are they? You mean what age? No, I meant class, uh, social, economic. Oh, I see. Um, mostly, I've worked, mostly I've worked with kids in, in city schools, and mostly I've worked with poor kids and, and with African-American Latino kids. Uh, I worked in New York. I worked in Detroit. 
I started, as you know, in Ann Arbor, and, and I work in lots of schools in Chicago around the school reform efforts, and that's been a very exciting uh, period, yeah. too. You know the work of uh, Joe Fernandez, sure. who was kicked out of school. Well, sure. I was thinking about if I could propagandize, not a ghost <laughs> of a chance. What a great <laughs> superintendent he'd be here. Right. That's, that's fantasy. Right. But back to the subject of teaching in your book. There are myths, the various myths, and you have a whole sequence on the myths involving the teacher and the learner, and the, well, they're both learners. And, and, but throughout, there's this whole matter of the world outside and inside, and how connection with the world outside, as the little kid's saying, where does that woman go? That's right, that's right. Night to sleep. That's right. I think that's a, very important that you can't escape from the fact that you live in the world. And, and in fact, uh, especially in maybe difficult situations like Chicago, if teachers spend too much of their effort trying to shut out the world, uh, it becomes a, a barrier to education that is much more hopeful, I think, to get involved with the world. A lot of, a lot of teachers who consider themselves child-centered um, are also hostile to the families that these children come from, and I think that's a contradiction. Well, let's bring that up, uh, the question of uh, uh, parents. Sure. And in, in, in bringing in families. Oh, you mentioned uh, Emmett Till here somewhere in the book. Uh, that is, that's, no, somewhere else, but Mamie Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till, who was killed in 1955 in the South, the case that set things off, has became a teacher. And her way of introducing parents to the class is quite marvelous. And they want to stay in class. What, what does she do? Kids. What kinds of things? Well, she, she just, just brings them in and uh, yeah. what's your suggestion? And she has them. And that, uh, at first they were very shy of sure. coming in. And, and bit by bit she just has them, but uh, sometimes she has, there's a balance. Yeah, but you have to... As the question of parents there, There's kind of two levels. On the one hand, if you're hostile to the parents or the community, I don't think you can teach kids. I mean, in other words, if you feel that the kids are all deficit, all bad, that the parents are no good, that the community is frightening, it's very hard to make the kind of intimate connection that involves real teaching and real learning. There's another level, too, which is that... Parents are a tremendous resource, a tremendous untapped resource in our schools. So in the schools I work in now in Chicago, um, we have developed some projects where parents can come in, not just to, to uh, do little uh, adjunct kinds of activities, raising money or having a this or, or, or a sale or something, but actually come in and bring some of their own skill and knowledge. Yeah. The great untapped... Yeah. Uh, which uh, leads to a very interesting thing. I'm going to read this new comment on it. It's from Bill Ayer's book on page 80 about learning from a parent. And when I was, this is Bill Ayer's book to teach. When I was first teaching kindergarten, a father came to me and said, if his son cursed or misbehaved, I had permission to hit him. I was taken aback. I thought this father must be a harsh person who didn't understand how to raise children or didn't care deeply about his own son. Over the course of the year, I came to know this father well. I turned to be wrong on both counts. He loved his son enormously and felt, based on his own experience, that while certain misbehavior, including cursing and showing disrespect, could be written off as, quote, boys will be boys, for many children, be likely interpreted as a serious problem when the child involved was an African-American male. He argued that given the power, relationships, and social realities of our time and place, his son's survival depended on conforming to certain rules of behavior. While we never fully agreed on the solution, it helped me see the problem from within. It was me, 
not him who need to grow in understanding. That's a very provocative paragraph. Yeah, I, th I think that it's, it, it, it's characteristic of what I consider to be the best of teaching, which is, again, to make yourself a student of how others see the world, to, see, to, to take their experiences, hopes, dreams, aspirations as real, and then to build your teaching from there rather than the other way around. Rather than being a know-it-all who's going to deliver the curriculum. Can I tell you a funny story about Miles Horton? This is a Miles Horton story that, that has to do with the ways in which people misinterpret and interpret reality. Miles told me uh, towards the end of his life about an incident when he was taking a group of demonstrators to, uh, uh, to a demonstration in a far-off city. And you remember that the white citizens' councils had put out a picture of Martin Luther King at Miles' school, the Highlander Folk School, and they wrote on it, uh, Martin Luther King at Communist Training School. They put it on billboards all over the South. Over and Miles was driving along with these kids to the demonstration, and they passed one of these and then another. And as the third one loomed up in the future, uh, in the uh, distance, one of the kids said to Miles, that's the stupidest advertisement I've ever seen. It doesn't even tell you where to go. <laughs> so, so here the White Citizens yeah. Council had put it up yeah. To degrade Martin Luther King, but the kids read it as, as, as an advertisement. And George Wallace used it while governor too during the 1965 Sub Montgomery March. It was all over. And, while, and of course, it just laid a bomb because people knew of King, but also those labor guys and women knew of the school of Miles on this track record. Which leads, since you mentioned Miles Horton, this quite remarkable teacher, you are following through and what he has been prescribing, he says, you look at a person, Miles talking about an adult now. He was talking about a Klansman, by the way. Uh, there was some Klansmen at that school who, by the way, were transformed. Right. I know this to be the case because I know one personally, right. former Grand Cyclops of the Klan, who is now a remarkable figure. Huh. At degrees. And Miles says, you look at a person with, with two eyes. One eye shows you what he is the other what he can be. And when you speak of the kids, what they can do, leading to what they can be, absolutely, you're Hortonian. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I think that it's absolutely essential. There's no reason to be a teacher unless you believe in the power of transformation. The only reason to become a teacher is if you believe that people can be better and if the world can be otherwise. And that's what you go out and set about doing when you're that's when you're the teaching. Basis. That comes right down to the beginning, doesn't it? And when you speak of the mystery of teaching, that is always there. The work of a teacher, again quoting Belair's, uh, that sequence, that phrase, the paragraph he read at the very opening of the program, the work of a teacher, exhausting, complex, idiosyncratic, never twice, is at heart intellectual, and here's the word, ethical enterprise. And so we come to something called ethics without being too high flown. Well, absolutely. It's a very, that's what I'm, uh, the, the, it's that contradiction I'm trying to capture. It's a very practical art. It's a very practical work. And yet, uh, in, even in its smallness, it's, a, it's an overarching ethical yeah. kind of now enterprise. Now that someone raised the question, you know, the question of hierarchy, here's always a hierarchy. And you're challenging hierarchies, it is. But someone will say, well, will the kids respect you if you're just, you're not just one of the kids. Well, absolutely not. Up. Well, you're absolutely not just one of the kids in, in one sense, in the sense that if you, if you, uh, 
if you're a teacher, you are the leader, the organizer, the person who brings the experience but, and, and brings the, the greater knowledge and the greater window into the world if you're teaching young kids. On the other hand, if, if you teach kids, if you treat kids as if they are somehow lesser adults, lesser uh, human beings, it leads to all kinds of mischief and I would argue all kinds of unethical activity prescribing uh, for them as if you know the answer to each and everything. The point is not as a teacher to be nothing in the classroom, it's to be a participant, but as a participant who respects and honors the needs and wishes and aspirations of others. I say that, uh, an image comes to my mind on the face, A.S. Neal. You ever have A.S. Neal? Absolutely. Summer Hill School. Absolutely. I went to visit him, this is 20 or 30 years ago, about the time, just about the time I saw you in Ann Arbor. Right. When you were a kid of 20, he's an old, old Scotsman, this great school outside, 100 miles outside London. I remember the heavy pea soup fog. And he was speaking about being a part, he sits there, he's a participant, at the same time an advocate and a leader to teach. It's a paperback, uh, The Journey of a Teacher, William Ayers. And uh, it's published, well, just ask for the book at the, at the stores. Teachers College Press of the publishers. Uh, we were talking with Bill Ayers here about this great educator, the late A.S. Neal Summerhill. He says, it's not something that must be done at that moment for a utilitarian purpose when the kid is making a mud pile or something, but it piques his imagination and it's relaxing and something that sort, and then it leads to something else. He's, the importance of play in, in a genuine sense, not just fun, fun, fun. No, absolutely. I think we learn, as, as young children certainly learn some of their most important lessons through play. Through play, they recreate their world. I mean, you see kids struggling with complicated social relationships, but also you look at the engagement of a kid building with blocks, for example, and discovering the wheel. That's an incredible moment. That's the having of a wonderful idea. That discovery that a wheel is what allows your truck to move along and the creation of the wheel, it's that reinvention that's real learning. And here's the thing that I know you would love. Uh, A.S. Neal tells us, there's one kid who was, he knew was a rascal, and this kid was a great actor, too. And uh, they're away from home, and he imitates his mother's voice on the phone. He says, would you give uh, 20 bob, or whatever, uh, about uh, several pounds, you give 20 bob to Johnny, and I'll pay you back. This is uh, often done. And so Neil uh, gives the kid uh, 20 bob, and he says, guess what, next day, the kid takes it. Your mother called back. She's give you five more, Bob. Here it is. And the kid looks at him and says, <laughs> the kid looks at us, you're a better actor than I am. <laughs> uh, I, I'll never do it again. <laughs> well, it's that, it's that yeah. kind of using his own, yeah. ju- I guess it's jujitsu. Well, it is in a sense. And, of course, he, he had a great sense of humor yeah. also. And the wonderful thing about Neil was that he was authentic. And he had an authentic relationship, yeah. human to human, with the kids he yeah. dealt with. The problem with a lot of the people who follow the great ones is that they end up being dogmatic. And yeah. so you have the followers of Neil aren't... I know this happens. Aren't really, it happens in every, it every happens field. Montefiore, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, Montessori, I was... Mont- I, Montes- not yeah. Montefiore. Yeah, that's Mont- a big slip. <laughs> that's a slip. But Montessori, I was, I was touring a Montessori school, and everywhere we went 
the director would say, oh, well, now Maria Montessori would say that the children are doing this. And Maria Montessori would say, finally, I said to her, you know, um, Carl Jung once said, I'm glad I'm Jung and not a Jungian because I can still change my mind. And she said, Maria Montessori said the same thing. So when you're, when you're in your dogma, it's hard to get no, out that, sometimes. I'll, I'll never forget. There was a, just a, a side item. It must have been about 25 years ago, at least, maybe 30, same 30 years ago. And there were a couple people around. There was a big debate, progressive John Dewey, uh, Montessori. Montessori had two, had two advocates. One was this dogmatic guy, and he offended, and the other was this wonderful Montessori teacher. Yeah. So it, it depends. It, it happens, that's yeah. right, and it depends. And Neil, as I say, to me, the greatness of Montessori or Neil or Holt yeah. is that, that one-of-a-kind quality, that yeah. authenticity that they strove for in their relationships. So you follow through with the idea they had, not literally. So this leads to a big question, because since you deal with kids, uh, ghetto kids and other kids and minorities and kids of very low-income families, uh, the word culturally deprived is used a great deal, culturally deprived, and also the tests, SE tests. And that comes to a big one. And uh, a guy named, I'll bring up the subject, a guy named you may know, man, Will Campbell, a Southern mm-hmm. preacher, and his story about that. Immediately, the word, the phrase, culturally deprived. Well, that was a phrase that I think we've discredited today, I, I hope. But when I was first a teacher, we were taught that some of the kids you'll have in your class will be culturally deprived. Now, it didn't take long for the civil rights people and then the black community and others to say, look, there's no such thing as culturally deprived. There's cultures, and that led to some talk about maybe what we should talk about is multiculturalism, which is a different way of thinking about it. This is back in the 60s. Now, that's slid into some sloganeering and disuse, also misuse. But the problem is that when you begin to label people culturally deprived, meaning this one doesn't have as good a culture as that one, or as that label was defeated, now today you can hardly go into a school without hearing the term at risk. This one's at risk. At risk. I didn't I know that. That's right. Ed at speak. Risk. That's at, at risk is oh, a that's big an one. Ed speak. But, but yeah, absolutely. But but so you go into schools and they'll talk about not children who are poor or children who are oppressed. They'll say these kids are at risk. Mm-hmm. I went. In, I was at a conference and I asked a guy to define for me using Peter Rabbit English what at risk meant. He had just done a paper on at-risk children in the kindergarten, and he said at-risk means black or Latino, poor, single mother. And I said, oh, it means culturally deprived, only now it's got a yeah. medical sound to uh-huh. it. You know? So the problem of labeling is yeah. epidemic in our schools. At-risk, behavior disordered, LD, meaning learning disabled, BD, it, it becomes a... a an alphabet soup that just confuses teachers. And so we come to the tests. The tests, uh, the tests are a very difficult and complicated problem. Um, testing kids and sorting kids uh, is certainly, you know, become big business among other things. And uh, from the teacher's point of view, from my point of view, the larger question, the larger problem in which we have to uh, locate testing is how do I, as a second grade teacher or as a 10th grade teacher, how do I know that I'm doing a good job, that I'm providing opportunities to learn? What are my goals? And I think that if you start there, you have a very different take on the testing uh, than you do if you start with kind of the well, the, the aggregate. reason I raise that is because uh, we know that uh, scores of the traditional tests indicate 
that uh, African-American kids scored considerably lower than other kids, white kids, see. So Will Campbell, who was, a very, who was a very unconventional Southern preacher, suppose a question were asked, question of life. Why does my grandmother have an iron bedstead instead of a wooden one? Ask a white kid, that, a kid, middle class white kid, the question. Ask a little black kid in the ghetto or in the South that question. The white kid wouldn't know the answer. The black kid's, oh, easy, because rats have a harder time <laughs> climbing up on iron than on wood. Yeah. Now that involves knowledge and life. That's right. It's very simple. That's Rats right. Well, have a harder time. Absolutely. I, I looked at a standardized test recently in which they had little pictures of uh, a little line drawing of people sitting on a porch. Yeah. And the question that was asked was the people are sitting on the, and then you had to complete it. Well, if you've never seen a porch, you wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. A lot of our kids in Chicago, if you drew a rectangle and said the people are living in the they would say yeah. projects, yeah. but the kids in Iowa might well say a project is something you do with yeah. construction paper in a class. Well, of course, you this know. is my own experience now. And ask, I say, tell me, tell me a story about your, <laughs> you got a grandma and you're talking about your grandmother. Now, the little middle class wife of my grandmother, well, she's at a retirement village in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, <laughs> uh, and every Christmas she sends me wonderful gifts. She's a wonderful woman. And we go there, we have a marvelous time, we go to Disneyland. It's a wonderful, she's a marvelous woman, that's hers. Now, I asked the little black kid, about your grandmother, or his auntie, you see. Mm -hmm. And he tells a story that is imaginative, that is funny, that may or may not be true, it doesn't matter, that is, that is imaginative right. about the stories, uh, he and she, how they exchange, and it's, now, who's the brighter one? Right. Well, and that's part of the problem with the whole testing enterprise. Who's the brighter one? And, and we've all become so kind of enamored of it that we can hardly take a step without these tests. But it really is a very limiting so vision. So what is it you do come back to you again? You find that thing in Jose, in Kelvin, and in your own kids, too. Well, what, what I think the responsibility of the teacher, even in light of and the responsibility of the parent, even in light of the kind of barrage of testing, is to make these real connections, to make learning start with the learner and bridge to deeper and wider things, and to take responsibility for building the kinds of activities, relationships, environments where kids can act, discover, grow, and, and in a lot of ways, partly intellectually, but also as citizens, as participants in a community, and that all these things need to be valued. And so what is it you do then? You also did research in your own background and growing up. That's part of it too, isn't it? But, uh, well, we, we, did, we do a lot in terms of working with kids uh, to, to, to uh, unlock this notion of where the knowledge is. Uh, I've done a lot with kids in terms of getting them to write their own stories, think through their own uh, uh, lives, their own, the meaning of their own lives. I'll give you a real simple example. I've done with kids for years, um, asking them to simply uh, describe, go home, find out, or if they're older kids, simply to describe how they came to have their first name. Uh, I did this with a kid. Now, now, for example, how did you get the first name Studs? Well, that's a story everybody knows. Um, but but how did, uh, how did the, this group of kids get their first names? In a kindergarten in which I did this recently, uh, we had a kid uh, named Lolita, 
who was from Lolita Lebrun in Puerto Rico. Now, nobody in the class knew who Lolita Lebrun was but this kid. We had a kid named... Who was Lolita Lebrun? Lolita Lebrun was a Puerto Rican nationalist, independence fighter. But only this one kid knew that. She's one of the people who was actually jailed for 25 years for shooting into Congress in the 50s. We had a kid named Marcus, named after Marcus Garvey, the the Jamaican... uh, So they talked about Marcus Garvey. So suddenly... You, we had a picture of Marcus standing in front of the statue where Marcus Garvey was born. Then we had a kid named uh, Solomon from the Bible. We had another kid from the Koran. So suddenly the world was opening up to us just by asking, how did you get your so first you name? So you the world by getting very personal. Absolutely. And it, and it leads in lines that you would, suddenly we were back to Europe and Russia and immigration and Puerto Rico. The funniest one in that group was we had a kid named Veronica. And she was named Veronica because her father was a fan of Archie Comics. And Veronica was his ideal of womanhood. So suddenly we had Archie Comics in the classroom and we were looking at those as well. So the point is that in an infinite world, there's no given knowledge that's the best knowledge. There's no, just you said you had the comics and there is no one set way since the world is so multicultural. It's multicultural, it's multidimensional, and, and in a lot of ways what you have to ask yourself as a teacher is, what kind of habits of mind do I want to see developing in my kids? Not what bits and pieces of discrete knowledge do they need to take the next step. So you're preparing kids for a global village. I think, that, I think that's what's nice about the approach to teaching that I've believed in and advocated my whole life is that it corresponds with really what we need in terms of the economic future as we move from an industrial factory type but model to... But there's something else here, and that's a key, and that's obviously it's a new Bel Air, something hope, H-O-P-E, hope. Well, it's a the big... One, and that, of course, is a lack. How does hope, not just, I don't mean Pollyanna hope or fantasy, but hope in discovery. The kid discovers him, her, self. You know, what's, you know what's interesting about you bringing up Jose before? Here was a kid who was so damaged that nobody gave him much hope. But I've never seen a kid uh, who, no matter how depressed or, or difficult that kid has been, that couldn't find something to connect to, some moment where the light goes off that becomes a reason for hope. You know, I worry a lot about the superficial nature of providing kids with role models or hope. Now, Charles Barkley says, I'm no role model, which which I think is good. You go into any classroom in Chicago and you see Michael Jordan's picture and it says, stay in school. How much of a motivator is that compared to Jose finding that he could repair skateboards? See, there again, now we come to a big one. This is continuous. We have sports figures, celebrated figures saying, uh, stay in school. And and so you do, okay, I, maybe, and of course, the fantasy, I'll be Michael Jordan, which of course is fantasy, one out of a million. But instead of, in me. That's right. Is there, I don't need anybody to tell me that. Absolutely. Is in there, me is the wanting, and that's the part that you, that you said unlocking. So it's a question of keys to the lock. It is a, a very huge problem in the urban schools is is that you have to ask yourself, you're asking kids to stay in school, but what is there in that school to stay in for? What is there that that in, ignites me, excites me, gives me hope and courage? And I'm convinced, because I've done it, because I see it all the time, that teachers are the key 
in terms of creating uh, the conditions where kids can find something worthwhile to do, something to believe in, something to attach themselves to, something to hope for. And if you can establish that, all the little adjunct things like a curriculum on AIDS or a curriculum on drug abuse are, are not relevant. And so, if you can't establish that, those little curriculums won't help anyone. And so anyone. the learning also, not only in the classroom, but those words they learn or a phrase or an idea is also connected with outside the street or, for that matter, the kitchen at home. Absolutely. Yeah. You talk about the imaginativeness of kids. I was talking to a high school teacher the other day who said she didn't believe the kids uh, uh, were, were literate at all until she was on a subway with two of her kids. Yeah. She saw two of her kids, and she went down and sat near them, and they were doing a rap. And in doing the rap, yeah. she realized that they had some literary skills, some mm -hmm. literacy that she had no access to. She turned that situation around and created a contest in which kids were to write raps on various subjects, and that unlocked for them I noticed that access. in the book also you were paying tribute to various other teachers who offer something. These are teachers who offer their own experiences throughout your book. We're talking to Bill Ayers, William Ayers, and To Teach is the title, The Journey of a Teacher, the subtitle. And Herbert Cole, who's been a guest in this program several times, an excellent teacher himself, has written the forward to it. Myths uh, about teaching and uh, accepted without questioning. Myth number one on page 11. Good classroom management is an essential first step to becoming a good teacher. Right. Yes, I call that a myth because it's so prevalent in the, in the lore of teaching and in teachers' colleges, the notion that first I'll get control and then I'll teach something positive. And it all becomes kind of a behaviorist yeah. nightmare. My argument isn't that we should have chaos, but rather that uh, it's in the, inter the authentic relationship yeah. of an, a caring adult with kids who, who, uh, uh, who want to be there and who, who can be, you know, uh, help to want to be yeah. there. It's that relationship that counts. So we skip some, and uh, the second one deals with that. Uh, third, good teachers make learning fun. We've been through that, not always. Good teachers, oh, here's the one, myth number five. Good teachers begin with the curriculum they are given. They begin with the curriculum they are given and find clever ways to enhance it. So there's something written in stone. Right. There's something as a block of wood there. Right. And, and I guess, I guess the, point, the point is that, that any curriculum that anybody writes is simply one person's take or, or a set of people's take on, on some bit of knowledge. And the much more important question is to, to ask yourself uh, what knowledge and experiences are most worthwhile. And that's a question for the group. That's the question that kids themselves can this happens help all, answer. And when, we'll skip around. so many myths here. Uh, myth eight. Students today are different than ever before. Oh, in the <laughs> old days, kids <laughs> paid attention. They folded their then never hollered or made noise. Yeah. I, I was uh, uh, asked to, to judge a, a contest on outstanding teachers, and one of the forms that people had to fill out, one of the blanks was, what's the biggest obstacle to your teaching? And the astonishing thing was a, a large number of these excellent teachers wrote, the biggest obstacle to my teaching is the kids. Now, that's an incredible statement. Yeah. I mean, they didn't say it outright. Some yeah. of them said, yeah. I used to be able to teach, but these kids, yeah. they don't know English, or they're hungry, or yeah. they're poor. Or, 
But the, the kids are the given thing. And I think kids have always come to school and always lived with a range of potentials and difficulties. Well, there's one, perhaps which the last one we'll touch on. Good teachers treat all students alike. Ah, that's a good one because, and that's true in families too, as you know. Uh, all, if all kids were alike, then teaching them all alike would be the right thing to do. But since they're all different, uh, you have to treat them differently. This one needs more today. Giving that kid more is the right thing to do, and all the other kids understand it. You know, when I had one kid who needed to, one of my own children needed to run into bed at night because he was frightened, it didn't disadvantage the two who didn't run into bed. It just was the decent so and compassionate thing to do. Certain ones differently. Absolutely. Which uh, perhaps near the end of of our conversation on this book, uh, uh, end with Frederick Douglass. It was the beginning book of the mystery of teaching. There's also the mystery of learning. We know there's an abolitionist, freedman, and learning to read, and nothing can be done to stop that. Well, I, I, what I try to do, uh, again, is to situate teaching in the larger social context. And sometimes it's easier if you leave the United States and you, and you go someplace else. In this case, what I did was I talked about Frederick Douglass and how uh, his master's wife tried to teach him reading. And when his master discovered it, he exploded. And he said, learning to read will unfit him to be a slave. And of course, that's one of the metaphors for this book. Learning unfits you yeah. to be a slave. Education unfits you uh, to be a tractable employee or a good soldier or a, or a passive consumer. And it makes you a citizen. And we know the very, the very essence of our, we hope it's our democracy, is the fact as a an intelligent, participatory citizenry. And that's what this is all about, really. Absolutely. Uh, the children are only newer people. Bill Ayer is my guest, and the book is To Teach the Journey of a Teacher, forward by Herbert Cole. any event, it's, it's uh, as, as Jonathan Kozel will say, it probably will be, a, certainly should be a required reading in every school of education in the nation, might I add, in every household. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dustin.